Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. More than a maker. More than an athlete. More than a pastor. Chata Elifinachili. I am Choctaw proud. We are the Choctaw Nation, and together we're more. They derive from the Iroquoian lineage, their name originating from the Muscogean word meaning speakers of another language. At one time, they inhabited 40,000 square miles within the Appalachian Mountains in what is now known as Georgia, North and South Carolina and Eastern Tennessee. However, in 1835, the new Ichota Treaty was signed and they, like many other tribes, were forced from their homelands to Indian Territory, now Oklahoma. 12,000 of their people were gathered and placed in stockades until it was time for their removal. Their journey took six to seven months on what is now termed the Trail of Tears. During this journey, they faced harsh winter weather and illness, and for more than 2,000 of them, death. Today, they are the largest tribe in the country with 440,000 members. They are the Cherokee people, and their endurance and strength continues on today. Here to talk with us is Jack Baker, a Cherokee and president of the board of the National Trail of Tears Association. We'll learn more about the Trail of Tears as well as Jack's own ancestral stories, which you won't want to miss. Jack, welcome to Native Chalk Talk. Thank you. I appreciate your having me. Absolutely. And I'd like to start by giving you a quick shout out and share about your good work. So Jack D. Baker is a graduate of Oklahoma State University. He is a past president of the board of the Oklahoma Historical Society and has served as the national president of the Trail of Tears Association for over 20 years. Jack also served for 21 years on the board of the Cherokee National Historical Society Incorporated, and many of those years he served as treasurer. He has been president for more than 35 years of Going Snake District Heritage Association and has served on several other nonprofit boards and commissions. Jack served for 11 years as one of the 17 members of the Tribal Council of the Cherokee Nation and represented those Cherokee citizens residing outside of the Cherokee Nation. He also served as a member of the 1999 Cherokee Constitutional Convention. He has done extensive Cherokee research for more than 40 years, authored various articles, and edited books on Cherokee history, as well as wrote forewords for several scholarly books on Cherokees. He has also served as an advisor and assistant with various documentaries on Cherokee history. That's a lot. Thanks for all you do. Now, you currently live in Oklahoma City, but where are you from originally? I'm originally from the Cherokee Nation portion of Eastern Oklahoma. I, the main town was Westville, which is only two miles from the Arkansas border. But I was born on my grandfather's Cherokee allotment, which is on the Illinois River in far Northwestern Adair County in Oklahoma, Hmm. which is less than 20 miles from the town of Westville. Went to school for many years. 
but I initially went to school at Chewy and it was a two room school and there were two teachers when I started in the first grade, but then yeah. in the second and third grade, they consolidated and there was only one teacher for the entire school. Whoa, God was, bless that teacher. There were eight grades and there were mm -hmm. only about 16 students in the school. Wow, 16 students. So were you top of your class? But there were, it was interesting. My brother went to school, first day of school, and he came home all excited, he told my mother that I could start to school, although I was, had just turned five. Oh. It seems there were no first graders. So the teacher said, if you have any younger brothers and sisters that are five, they could start first grade. And there were three of us in the first grade. Oh my goodness. So you skipped ahead a little bit. Yes. 16 kids in the school. Wow. And so were you in, I guess you were in class with your brother, right? Yes. That's so and neat. And oh, that's so cool. I do. Yes. All the bakers taking up the whole classroom. Well, I was a <laughs> baker, but. Uh, oh, okay. Um, I bet it was really beautiful over there too. Eastern Oklahoma is usually pretty. Yes, it was near the Illinois River and then we could see the bluff across the river. So sounds like a good place to grow up for a kid, huh? It was. When I was eight, we moved into the town of Westville. And so then I went to the Westville schools and graduated from high school there. Okay, was that a bigger school? Yes, there were about 800 Students. Oh, wow. That was probably a culture shock. Yes, it was. <laughs> and then when I graduated, we had the largest graduating class ever there. There were all of 66 of us. And that record- The whole 66. For many years. And I think recently it's been broken. That's like my mom. She went to Payola High School in Oklahoma. I can't remember how many graduating students there were, but it was something like 10, you know, and they were all super close. They still have reunions. I love that they still do that. Do you still have your class reunion? Yes, we have an all school reunion every other year. Okay, mm. nice. And it is good because the majority of the people there are my age and just older and younger. Yeah. Unfortunately, the younger people are not attending the all school reunion because they did huh. 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, before we go much further, I'd like our listeners to hear more about the Trail of Tears Association. So tell us more about what that association does. Okay. The Congress designated the Trail of Tears National Historic Trail as such in 1987. And when they designate a new historic trail, they set up an advisory committee that's to exist for 10 years. And that advisory committee is to establish an association to work with the National Park Service to assist them. They've done the okay. same previous with the Oregon Trail, California Trail, Santa Fe Trail. They're all National Historic Trails. So the advisory committee established the Trail of Tears, the National Trail of Tears Association in 1993, then they had their first 
conference and symposium in Little Rock in 1996. And that's actually when I first became involved, was by attending that first conference. We were asked then to go back and set up state chapters in the nine states that the National Historic Trail went through. Oh, wow. So you're kind of a pioneer in the association. So I said, I could do that, unfortunately. <laughs> but I had just helped at the Oklahoma Historical Society establish a Friends of the Oklahoma Historical Society archives. And I had worked like three or four months before in writing, helping to write the bylaws for that and then establishing that uh-huh. work. I thought, oh, I could, and we yeah. did. <laughs> this and I can do. <laughs> we met in April and there were the three of us met and wrote the bylaws for the state. And we had an organizational meeting in June. Yeah. And I, only two months after we'd been asked to go back and form chapters and you're like that's how it's done and you're welcome <laughs> I was active in a couple of local organizations so I had them invited all of them to come together for the organizational meeting and so we formed the Oklahoma chapter and it was the first state chapter to be formed but we worked closely with the uh, National Park Service they're as a National Historic Trail, there is no land that is owned by the National Park Service for this. But we work with private landowners as well as local state, local governments, and also some the National Forest and National Park Service within some of their state national parks. For example, the Trotters National Historic Trail a segment crosses Pea Ridge National Military Park. Okay. And also part of it crosses the uh, Chickamauga National Military Park in the Chattanooga area. Okay, yeah. And we go through some of the national forest. So we Hmm. work with the people in those areas. And when the national trail was designated as such, there were really only two sides for the Cherokees on their force removal that were marked. Mm-hmm. One was in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, where a couple of our leaders died and were buried and their graves remained and they had it established a trail of tears park there, the town of Hopkinsville did. And then at Cape Girardeau, Missouri, where they crossed the Mississippi River. One of our Cherokee ladies died and was buried there. And so they have a state park, the Trotters State Park there in Missouri. So those were really the only two sites that were marked. And so we worked with the Park Service and we put up literally hundreds of interpretive panels. And there are thousands of signs along the highways because there's the highway segment of the trail that is near to oh, the it's possible. Right. And so it's marked as such. But then we've marked some of the smaller roads and many uh, dirt and unpaved roads that are very similar to what they were in the 1830s when the churches hmm. went through. And those are marked wow. at uh, 
original segments of the trail. So, but I'm proud of all that our members of the associations have done in all the states. Yeah. Of identifying all of these sites and then working with the Park Service to put up the interpretive panels. Right. So I I know that originally our people, all all the native peoples were removed, the ones that did get moved over to Indian Territory. And then later the the steps that they took, the journeys that they made were eventually termed the Trail of Tears. Um, so how in that journey that they made, how do we today know exactly what that trail was? Because I know it's through forests sometimes, like you said, sometimes it was across roads in the 1830s. How do we know exactly where the Cherokees, for instance, walked? Some of the states, such as Arkansas, they actually mm. laid out their townships and all in the 1830s, just before the forced removal. And their maps of these show the roads at the time. Ah. Some of them are missing, but for the most part, we have those. And wow. we have maps from uh, many maps from the period. And sometimes they're Civil War maps because the roads had not changed significantly ah. 20, 25 years until the Civil War. They yeah. were still pretty much the same roads. But Cherokees and the other tribes from the southeast actually were removed on the uh, main travel roads at the time. Hmm. I know many people say, oh, they were cutting their own road to get there. That isn't the case. They, That's they went, what I always thought. <laughs> yeah. They went on what was the interstate of the day, which wasn't okay. that nice, but nevertheless, there were the roads that were there. Yeah. And they had to go where there were provisions. And interestingly enough, there are many of the financial records at the National Archives in D.C. that have receipts where they have paid farmers for uh, forage or hay for the animals or for corn for the, you know, or wow. for food, well, corn for the people. And yeah. So with these receipts, you're able to actually go back and identify where those people live on the county records and, mm -hmm. and say, okay, then they would have gone on the road near or by that place. So that's amazing. And on these detailed records in order to identify the actual roads and roads. Yeah. Okay, that really helps because it's been a big jumbled mess in my mind um, all these years as to how they knew that. And so there's these little pockets of proof you have along the way from the food to the roads to the maps the civil war maps things like that you mentioned that there were some graves that that were marked correct yes of folks that were lost along the way how were they marked initially there was chief white path who was buried at hopkinsville and then the fly smith who was also buried there the Cherokees had put up uh, poles with white flags so that the later detachments that came by would know that they were buried there. And then okay. evidently the local people later mm. kept, the, well, knew where the graves were. Yeah. 
Do they know who was buried in those places? Well, we only know those two. And then okay. the one at uh, Cape Girardeau, they had mistakenly misidentified her or someone had given her the name as Princess Otaki. Oh, really? Of course, Princess. Okay. But she was, <laughs> right. but she was actually Nancy Bushyhead Hildebrand. Oh, wow. How did they find that out? Well, we were able to Records do of some? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you were able to figure out who she really was and that way she can be honored after life. Right. But we'd mentioned children. Let me, if I may, talk briefly of what happened. Yes, the, please. The treaty was signed in 1835 by a handful of Cherokees that had no authority to do so. And so the Cherokee, but under that treaty, they were given two years from when it was ratified, which, well, was ratified in late May and a couple of days later signed by the unprecedented Andrew Jackson. So that was May 26th of 1836 when it was officially signed. So the Cherokees had two years from that date. Well, our legitimate government under John Ross, the principal chief, and various delegates who went with him to Washington, D.C., had worked to try to get either a new treaty or revise that treaty. And they had a lot of support, particularly from New England. Daniel Webster, for one, was a big supporter. And Henry Clay mm. of Kentucky was a major supporter. Okay. Opposing that. So, so we had a lot, of, and that was primarily through the missionaries that had lived among the Cherokees that primarily from the New England area. Yeah. So so we had the support. So we had a lot of encouragement that we'd be able to do that. But unfortunately, it did not happen because of Jackson's administration hmm. and the support that he had from the congressional leaders. Oh, Jackson. So, so he sent uh, Winfield Scott in 18, early 1838 to round up the Cherokees. And so they were actually uh, rounded up at the point of a bayonet by the hmm. soldiers. And they first were rounded up in Georgia, which is because Georgia was the most vociferous in removing the yeah. Cherokees from their state. Okay. So, so they were first removed from there. They were taken to the Chattanooga area in Tennessee, which was called Ross's Landing, which was a steamboat land or a landing there on the Tennessee River. So the so within a two-week period or so, about all the Cherokees were moved out of Georgia. Some were moved to uh, Fort Payne, Alabama, but the majority were removed to Ross's Landing. And so they had immediately started to send detachments of several hundred. So there were three detachments that were sent in June of 38 west, two of them by steamboat, and one actually went overland to Waterloo, Alabama, when, where they uh, caught the steamboats there. And uh 
quick interruption. Sorry. Do you know why, like how they selected who would go on a steamboat versus who? Because obviously one option is a little easier than the other. You know, who went by foot, who went by boat? They just grabbed the people and sometimes they separated families. Oh. So ah. Good what? Uh, situation for those first three detachments. It's wow. One of my ancestors, well, there was actually, I get into later, Herr Conrad led one of the detachments later. Mm -hmm. But his former wife that I'm descended from, Katie North, had been caring for her father, who was a white man that had married a Cherokee lady more than 60 years before. And he had been described in February of 38 as being upwards of 100 years old. And there's an account later of some of the people that were involved in the removal in the Chattanooga area. And they said that uh, the quote that there's a white man named North and who was an old gentleman that made such a fuss with the soldiers about being taken from his home and being removed that they threw him in the water and drowned him. No way. So, wow. But, but that was during the summer. And so it was extreme drought was occurring. Mm -hmm. So, the one detachment made it all the way to Eastern Oklahoma, which was at Fort Coffee, which is just west of uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas. But the other two actually went aground and there was not enough water for the boats. So they walked from near Boralton, Arkansas into the Cherokee, present Cherokee Nation. And one of those detachments, there were I think 457 arrived in the Cherokee Nation, and there were over 150 deaths in that. Oh, point. that's so, a lot. Since, since the boats couldn't go and all that, the Cherokees petitioned the government. They'd already been rounded up in all the states and were in camps, primarily around the Cherokee Agency in present Charleston, Tennessee. And then the other camp was at Fort Payne, Alabama. So they petitioned government to be able to wait until the rain started in September, October. Because evidently, at that time, no one traveled in the summertime anyway. It was considered the sickly season. As we could see where 150 of the 600 died in the one detachment. Of course, it was that time of year. So, so they were able to delay their departure, and then they petitioned to be in charge of their own removal at that point. And mm -hmm. so that was granted. And so then there were actually 13 detachments formed under the principal chief, John Ross, and 12 came by land, which had already been laid out, and there'd been a, another detachment of the treaty party had gone that way a year or two before. But that was the called the land route, which was really quite long because it went from Tennessee up into Kentucky, across southern Illinois, and then up into Missouri, a big curve in Missouri, which actually went through part of Route 66. Huh. 
and then down across Northwest Arkansas, which is the Ridge National Battlefield Park is there. And then on into President Oklahoma. So that, so when they delayed, then that was a severe winter hit. And so that's when so many deaths occurred because of the snow and ice. Mm -hmm. oh so they had, so there's the two different segments there. The ones that were sent west immediately under the soldiers where it was hot and the drought occurred. And then the ones under the principal chief or under the Cherokee Nation leadership. And then that, unfortunately, the severe winter got down. Wow. I wonder which one would be worse if you had to have, make a choice. Do you know, um, are there any stories of the soldiers that you know of? I've always wondered if some of the, I know with the Choctaw, I had read some accounts where some of the soldiers didn't agree with what was going on. They hated that this was happening and that they were having to carry through with these orders. Do you know of any stories like that as well? Yes, I think there are several soldiers that made those comments. Yeah. That were part of the official soldiers. Unfortunately, in the Cherokee Roundup, there were some of the state militias, such as the Georgia State Militia, that wanted the, the Cherokees gone. Oh, so, right. So they were not uh, not as easy on the Cherokees as some. Well, none of them were because they had the orders to take them from the sure the orders at least were do what you have to do right mm -hmm. but, but some agreed that uh, it was not the right thing to do and general scott actually was fairly compassionate and his orders were that you know no cherokees were to be harmed but unfortunately wow. that wasn't the case right but it was primarily the state militias that were technically not under his authority. Mm -hmm. Supposedly they were turned over to him to command, but uh, they still did what they wanted with their own leaders. Right. Do you know if there were any rebels among them? Like did the Cherokee fight back at all? Or by this time were they pretty resolved that they had to do what they had to do? Well, they had pretty much resolved that they would not fight because they knew that if they did, that they would be wiped out. There was, in North Carolina, there's a family that was rounded up and uh, the only wife was being mistreated. And so the gentleman and a couple of his sons, they had actually attacked the soldiers and killed a couple of the soldiers. And so they were, and then they hid out in the mountains there in North Carolina. Wow. And later, some of the Cherokees actually agreed to go bring me and Charlie, or also known as Charlie. And he pretty much agreed that he and his sons would come in because the soldiers had, they had made the agreement that if they would bring in Charlie and his sons, then they would allow the rest of the Cherokees there in North Carolina to remain, even though many of them were already exempt from removal because their lands had been ceded 20 years before the Treaty of, or almost 20 years before the Treaty of 1835. Huh. So they were actually outside the limits. 
So therefore, uh, so shady. But they let them remain, and Charlie and his sons were uh, killed. Hmm. Oh, they were. Yes. So sad. And they were actually they forced uh, the Cherokees to shoot them. Really. Charlie was in an agreement to doing this because he knew that the rest of the Cherokees could remain then, including his grandchildren and some of his younger children. That's so sad. I hate that. Like there was no, there was no good answer. There was no good choice. The best choice was giving up. I mean, as far as safety goes, and even then it wasn't that safe. You could die along the journey um, alone. Do you think that um, there was any, did they get lost along the way? Do you know? I mean, obviously it, there was a long way to go. Surely there were some kind of veering off the path on occasion, right? I, I do not know of any because I think uh, the routes were laid out fairly well. Yeah, okay. So, mm. And then, of course, the first group, the soldiers, were leading those. Do you know what the typical day looks like? Did they have to start at a certain time every morning and start camping at a certain time at night? It was probably from sunup to sundown would be my guess. Oh, my God. I mean, if you talk about someone who, say, 90 years old, for instance, I know there were elders along yes. those journeys. Can you even imagine? They're probably in better shape than some elders. <laughs> uh, but, you know, because back then people were just more active than they are now. But And of the more than 2,000 deaths that are actually recorded during the roundup and the encampment and then during the journey west, the vast majority were the aged and the children. Mm. Oh, so sad. So many, many of the younger children died. So, you know, it's interesting. You've got those books behind you. So for our listeners, Jack and I were talking before we started today, and he was giving me a video tour of the library he's in, which is beautiful. There's a fireplace in there with a fire going right now. We're recording this in December when it's cold outside. So I just can feel the coziness in your house right now. But how many books is it that you said you have approximately? In this room, probably around 700, well, 700 that have been published that relate to the Cherokees, and then oh. another couple of hundred thesis and dissertations, plus several hundred uh, journals. That's so amazing. So, I mean, I, I asked him if he has read every single book. He said no, but he's read a lot of them. And it truly is a library of all things Cherokee in there. I, I would love to just spend hours and hours researching your books. And so there's no better person to talk to us about the Cherokee today than Jack Baker. Um, there's some of the missionaries helped out on the removal and accompanied okay. the But one of them accompanied them and... Uh, kept a journal of it, which is. Oh, really? Of course, it's irreverent. Okay. Monograph one. How many are there? Well, there's two or three is all there are, but we published. Oh my gosh. Is it so fascinating? What, what little tidbits do you have for us out of that? May 26th. 
he writes that in Georgia, there were supposed to be about 8,000 Cherokees. These in general were taken just as they were found by the soldiers without permission to stop either for friends or property. He said as the soldiers advanced towards a house, two little children fled in fright to the woods. The woman pleaded for permission to seek them or wait till they came in, giving positive assurances that she would then follow on and join the company. But all entreaties were vain. And it was not till a day or two after that she would get permission for one of her friends to go back after her lost children. Oh gosh. But he goes on and uh, he's at Brainerd's mission at the time when the roundup occurred. Mm -hmm. Which is uh, in the eastern part of present Chattanooga. He writes on Thursday, May 31st. This is when they're bringing this Cherokees out of Georgia into Tennessee. And Brainerd was uh, probably four to five miles from Ross's landing. Okay. And Thursday, May 31st, just before night, a young lieutenant called and requested accommodation for two or three officers and permission for a company of Cherokees to camp near. Though we are not in the habit of entertaining any white men, Yet for the sake of the poor Cherokees, we work to accommodate the above officers. Accordingly, a little before sunset, a company of about 200 Cherokees were driven into our lane. The day had been rainy, and of course, all men, women, and children were dripping wet with no change of clothing and scarcely a blanket fit to cover them. As some of the women, when taken from their houses, had on their poor stress, this, of course, was the amount of their clothing for a journey of about 800 miles. As soon as permission was obtained from the officers, we opened every door to these poor sufferers. Mothers brought their dear little babes to our fire and stripped off their only covering to dry. And oh, how heartrending was the sight of those little sufferers, their little lips blue and trembling with cold, seemed yet to form a smile of gratitude for this kind reception said we wept and wept again and still wept at the thought of that affecting scene and in the company were one or two blind men and several persons unwell one poor old creek being sick and wet was nourished by our fire and then he goes on there was a camp not far and talks about all of the Cherokees that are brought to be buried in the mission cemetery. This is July 11th, soon after breakfast, our dear brother Mills and family came from the camps. These bring out the house with many others prevented by attending meeting at the camps. Therefore, Moses went alone, who is one of the Cherokees who is a member of the church. Soon in the morning, a young man with a measure to make a coffin for two little children of Sister Jenny, or this was an only son and the father and most of the children being absent during the situation of the mother, particularly distressing. Then it goes on to say, soon the bereaved mother with a company of mourners arrived. The corpse was swung under a pole by means of a shirt and carried by two men. It was laid out in the shade near the graveyard till preparations were made for burying it. Then the corpse was put into the coffin and deposited in the silent grave. July 13th. 
two days later, a young Cherokee woman died with the dysentery after several weeks sickness. She had been for some time a member of the Methodist church and sustained a Christian character. And towards the evening, she was buried. And then it goes on and on, numerous accounts of them dying in the camps, being buried there in the cemetery. And that cemetery is still there in East Tennessee as part uh, at the edge of a parking lot of a shopping mall. Really? But there are huge trees and it's owned by the DAR who purchased it many years okay. ago. Okay, yeah. Fenced. So. I'm glad it's being protected. It's really easy to just go Google the Trail of Tears and you get all these facts and data. But when you hear stories, like actual accounts from people that experienced it or observed it, it's a totally different game uh, just to be able to put yourself in those shoes. And especially since he talks about it, and of course, he describes their camping and so on. Yeah. What What else do you want our listeners to know about the Trail of Tears and your people and the journey that they were on? Well, one thing was, uh, what I think is sort of a trait of the Cherokees is that they worked and helped each other on this journey. And then even by growing up in Eastern Oklahoma, you know that everyone was helping each other with that. So, but one thing I want people to know is that we survived this and we were very resilient. We reformed our Cherokee government and we arrived for the most part, the majority of them in spring of 1839, late winter, early spring of 39. By 1844, we had erected a brick Supreme Court building, which is still standing in downtown Tahlequah, which is the oldest surviving government building in the state of Oklahoma. That was only five years after removal. And that's pretty quick to get their stuff together. And only 10 years later, we began our male and female seminaries for our Cherokee students that later evolved into Northeastern State University. But the uh, male and female seminaries, they were both large brick buildings and they were opened in 1851. That's so that, amazing. That's only 12 years after the removal. And we'd established this, a public school system, which the states didn't even have this, but the public school system and it established I think in the early 1840s, around 15 public schools throughout the Cherokee Nation. And yet they called us the savages. Yes. What's interesting, too, is, is there's two things here. One is pretty impressive, A, that they could come into this new land and just, just start moving, just start getting everything put together, the government, the schools. That in itself, I had no idea that that happened so quickly. Um, but secondly, the other thing that they may have had a little bit of practice before they left because one thing I, when I was really starting to research the Choctaws a few years ago, one thing that surprised me was how a lot of them were still living their traditional ways in say Mississippi, 
but they also had built farms. They were trading with both their own tribe, but also with other tribes and with settlers that had come in. They had anything from bartering systems to actual like stores with, you know, trading money and that kind of thing. So it, it's it's important to keep that in perspective, the two sides that one, it is very impressive that they came over and made these big strides very quickly. That in itself alone, just full stop is a big deal. And then also on top of that, I think people don't always have the clear picture that not all natives, Native Americans at that time when the removal happened, were still living out in wherever it was, uh, grass huts, swamps, teepees, you know, all the different things. They A lot of them had kind of uh, adapted to colonization to some degree. So help me understand that with the history of the Cherokee before they left for the removal, what what did it look like? Was there a percentage of them still living their fully 100% in their Cherokee ways or were there some that had adopted as well? The majority had adopted in some way and primarily the fact that uh, they lived in, well, log houses, or frame houses or brick mansions, even some. Wow, yeah. So, so we, just like the nearby white inhabitants, it was the same type of dwellings. Yeah. But in the Cherokees, of course, they never lived in teepees. Those were the western no. tribes, plains but, tribes. Right, but they did live in. Uh, houses that they had constructed then they actually lived in towns and and they actually had their own town chiefs and each town had its own council house where people would gather usually in the evenings to visit or else to have their yeah. government or someone and that to me is just shocking it'd be like if someone came to your house right now jack and said you are being removed. We're going to take you to a place you've never been before. And you're going to have to walk hundreds of miles. Like that's how shocking the whole thing is. It's all shocking in general, no matter how they were living. But I think a lot of us still think, oh, people were still living their very more primitive ways or whatever, comparatively. Which is one reason they wanted us removed because they wanted our homes and farms and even plantation. Oh my goodness. It's terrible. Was cotton one of those things with the Cherokee too that they were wanting to take over? It there wasn't that much of the Cherokees that became cotton land, but there was some. Okay. What was their commerce primarily? Was corn and grain. Because mm. we have an 1835 census, which was actually monograph two that the Oklahoma chapter did was. Nice. They published the 1835 census of the Cherokees in the East. And there it talks about the various uh, like bushels of corn that were grown the previous year, wheat and so forth. Yeah. So then there was some cotton that was grown because they did, uh, the women had their own spinning wheels and their looms to weave their own cloth blankets and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's so barbaric to me. It is so insane that, yeah, they wanted their land. They wanted their houses. They wanted to just take over. So get out. We're moving you. And there's a surprisingly number of uh, 
Cherokee homes still standing in the east. Oh, really? Were, which were, for the most part, the uh, nicer homes. Yeah. Plantations. But there were others, like my ancestor, Herr Conrad, that I'd mentioned earlier, who led one of the detachments. His home is still standing. And really? We Have you? Up that. And oh. it's on a beautiful horse farm there. Yeah. The story and a half log house, which is one big room downstairs and a big room upstairs. But they're chestnut logs that uh, some of them are probably 30 inches or more wide. Wow. It's amazing. Have you been there? Yes. To see it? it built about oh, what a moment that must have been. Yeah, especially to step across that threshold and oh, see right. the worn, worn threshold. Uh, all the people that had been probably all the most Cherokee leaders had actually visited there from one time. It's like they touched this wall. They touched the doorknob. It's amazing. So you've always, obviously, um, it sounds like maybe you've gone down there to kind of trace your roots and see everything in person, huh? Yes. And I've made many, many trips to the Southeast. And fortunately, I, when I read the history of the area, I've been able to recognize where the sites were. Yeah. Wow. Initially, I could do that in eastern Oklahoma because I was familiar with northeastern Oklahoma. And now they're right. in the east also, which makes a big difference in reading history if you can actually visualize the place. Right. So true. Yeah, that's one thing I have not done yet. I haven't been able to go to Mississippi and do all that research down there and see all the sites. And because like you said, it, it really kind of puts you in a frame of mind of understanding better. Now in Oklahoma, I did what I called the Choctaw road trip where we went to the sand boys area. Um, sand boys County is now Haskell County, but that's the whole area where my ancestors roamed quite a bit. And when, when I was there, I just had a hard time not crying the whole time. Just going, ah, oh, this was their farm. We took some rocks from the side of the road. So we were like, well, it's probably the only thing we can take to, to memorialize this trip. But um, so how cool that you got to do that. There was a, well, the spring down below the house. And I was there once in the, well, in the springtime. And it had rained very hard. And there were yellow iris, oh. uh, the wild iris that amazing that some people call the swamp iris, but they were growing along there, and many of them had washed off the bank, and I picked up two or three of them out of the water that had been washed out and brought them home. And they're growing in this Western Oklahoma clay soil and doing beautifully. That's amazing. Each year I have all these Good beautiful for you. yellow irises blooming. They don't bloom. The blooms only last a week or so, but it's still. Nice. Yeah. Oh, from the homeland. Yes. That's really neat. And another time there was a house that was there, a larger plantation type house. And it had just been moved from that site three or four months before I was there up to a higher place on the hillside. But in the old place, 
which the basement or cellar area was still open. And now that was 40 years ago, 40. Now it's still that way. It's really? still but at that first trip in the early 80s, I pulled up a daffodil that was just growing at the edge of just a single one. Yeah. Maybe you can inspire everybody a little bit to do something like that when they go on their journeys to see where their ancestors lived. Don't steal things, you know, don't take bricks from the house, maybe just a, a flower or two. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned for part two coming up. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.